Welcome to the Hyper Guy Motivational Podcast. I'm so delighted to have Dr. Carol Geffner with me today. Um, she's an absolutely wonderful person. Um, I've known her for quite a while. Um, she is a mom, first of all. Uh, she is a professor at USC of practice of uh, practice of governance and management. She's a director uh, director of the Executive Masters of Leadership program at USC. She's an international coach of executive leaders um, at the Institute of Global Consulting with uh, DeVries, I believe. Uh, she's a consultant with public and private organizations on large scale change and building leadership capacity for the future. Uh, she spent a career building and leading businesses internationally and domestically. And finally, she is writing a book and she's going to tell us all about that book. It's a book coming out, a, a book coming out uh, regarding women and leadership in male dominated professions. Thank you so much for being here. You've done so much. I just don't want to forget everything. Well, thank you for asking me. I've been so looking forward to this because I knew I was going to have fun. And that's a great way to start the morning. And I always love seeing you and talking with you. So let's go. Yeah. So we're going to start off by just, you know, we're just going to kind of go through your life and um, just see how you've, uh, your career's progressed at your personal and your professional life a little bit. Um, and also going to be picking your brain about leadership stuff because you're the go-to person everyone goes to when it comes to leadership. So um, tell me where you were born and raised. So I was born in Providence, Rhode Island. And Rhode Island is the smallest state in the union. So it's, you know, very different than being raised in a large city in California. It was a great place to grow up, although it was not a cool city then. It is a very cool city now. Um, long after I left, the, the uh, mayor turned it into a very cool city. So I was born in Providence, Rhode Island, and Providence is a very diverse city. And I mention that only because... Um, that helped shape me. I was raised um, in a neighborhood, a middle-class neighborhood, and four or five houses down was the uh, police chief, and two houses down from him was the head of the New England Mafia, um, and that was, um, you know, the Mafia has always been a big deal in New England. Anyhow, I'll, I'll skip that part, um, but I was raised in a city and a state that was um, diverse. My high school was, you know, somewhat white, somewhat um, Latina, Hispanic, somewhat Puerto Rican, somewhat black. I mean, it, and that was a great environment in which to be raised. Um, and then when it was time for college in those well, days. Well, hold oh, on. Sorry. You don't get, you don't get okay. to skip to, we, we get oh. to, all the, we get to get all the other parts too here. Uh, okay. So how was it growing up there? I mean, um, when you were young, what was your relationship with, with like with your parents and who were your kind of role models and heroes growing up when you were like elementary school and what kind of things did you like to do growing up? So my relationship with my parents was, um, was different. In other words, my relationship with my mom was really, really good. And she was a working mom in those days. You know, that wasn't very, that wasn't typical. It was somewhat atypical. And my relationship with my dad was not very good. He was an alcoholic. And as I grew into my teenage years, that got worse. So that was a difficult, it was a difficult household. Um, I learned a lot over the years in terms of how that shaped me, both positively and negatively. Um, I don't know that I had heroes when I grew up. Uh, that, yeah, that that wasn't the case. I was very social. I'm sure that doesn't surprise you. I, I was. I have a sister, and she's four and a half years older than I am, and I was the social one. So when I was, I would say, junior high school and high school, I was always involved with clubs. I was the president of one of them. That probably also doesn't surprise you. Um, I had lots of friends. There were a lot of cliques in, in my kind of general, larger neighborhood. Um, and I don't mean just geographical. I mean, the kids who went to school. And I was part of one of those. I'm not so proud of that, but that's the way it was then. And yeah, I just had a lot of friends. We always, uh, there were a lot of parties. We hung out. 
Um, I reached out to friends and, you know, specific friends when there were, there was trouble in my household. So my sister was the one who kind of went inward and was, you know, would go in her room and read books. And I was the one who would go outward and, and reach out to, you know, very dear friends. So Carol, let me ask you a question. You, you said that that that's difficult having one parent that's going through those kind of things. And how did, did that help the relationship with your mom and how did that help you develop? And then also how did you kind of work through getting beyond those boundaries uh, with your dad? Because I know that sometimes, you know, for so many people, when they have a parent that ha is that way, they can, they can go the other way. What kept you kind of on a positive track and, and, and move beyond that? Yeah. So my relationship with my mom was, you know, always good. It became great when she retired at the age of 74. So that's also, I mean, that gives you another snapshot of my mom. My mom was hardworking and very few women of that generation worked till they were 74. And I think the only reason she stopped working was because my, uh, my sister and myself would, um, you know, barrage her pretty much weekly and say, when are you going to stop and have some fun? So as I grew up, my mom was a steady state, you know, um, she was feisty, very, very feisty. And she was in many ways just doing what she could to survive and raise her girls. Her girls were the most important thing to her. Um, but as I said, as the years went by and I matured and she got older and she retired out here, um, then our relationship became extremely close. So let me go back to my growing up years. Um, I have lots of good memories of uh, times with my mom. And I'll, I'll give you like one quick story because I know you like stories. I do. Um, Newport, Rhode Island is a fairly famous city. You know, I live in Southern California, so people think Newport Beach is it. Well, Newport, Rhode Island was the original Newport. And that's where all the, you know, the Vanderbilts uh, um, and people of that um, uh, kind of status built their original mansions long before I was ever um, born. In any event, my mom and my sister and I would get in the car, typically on a Saturday or Sunday, would pack a picnic and we would stop. And this is very funny now when I think of it, because it's all of a 40 minute ride and we would stop midway. It was like a day trip and we would have a picnic. And, and uh, that became a really strong image for me and experience so much so that when I had my son, I would take him to places like Pollo Loco or whatever, and we'd have car picnics. So um, I don't know what helped me stay on track. I mean, I'm not going to tell you that it was always easy, but, you know, some of this is unknown. You know, we can, and, and you know this, you can look at families and wonder, well, how did some of those kids keep going forward and some fell off? And I'm, I'm sure you understand that deeply. And that was the case. Both my sister and I became very successful. We're both very driven. That's an outcome of being raised in that family, that kind of family. Um, thankfully, I had very close friends. And that's another key factor for kids. I had very good friends and they were doing the right thing, right? They were in school. They were social. Um, in as we got into high school, you know, this was the Vietnam era. So yes, there were some kids doing LSD and, you know, marijuana in those days, but most of my friends were on the straight and narrow. And I think that made a huge difference. I also had a boyfriend for the last three years of high school and he came for, from a very solid upstanding family. And so I wasn't surrounded in my immediate circle by many friends who were doing kind of the wrong thing. And somehow, you know, my resilience was being built over those years, except of course, as a kid, one doesn't know that. Right. Right. Exactly. And then, and then when, when high school, 
did you decide then, you know, I'm going to go to college and I, it seems like your mom was an amazing role model in some ways. When you talk about, you don't know what your heroes are. Sometimes when we process things, you know, maybe your mom was your hero because she set such a great example for you. Um, and so I'm wondering when you were in high school, did you have any idea that if I asked you, Hey, you know, Carol, you know what, you're going to be doing this 20 years from now. What did you, what did you see yourself doing when you're in high school and where did you want to go? Yeah. So, you know, we also have to remember that the times were different, right? Um, and we didn't have career coaches. We, you know, the guidance counselors were pretty much useless. So, you know, you just kind of followed your nose as the saying goes. And everybody in my generation did that, except for those who knew very early on, I want to be a doctor or I want to be a lawyer. And there were very few of those. So in my family, education is just a given. It wasn't a question mark. You know, are you going to college? It's where are you going to college? So I never questioned that, and um, nor did my sister. And pretty much the way you determine, the way I determine where to go to college is I asked my friends, where are you applying? Mm -hmm. And and then I, you know, we had these big, thick books of colleges across the country. And, you know, you'd, I'd read the books, you know, what's in New York, what's in Massachusetts, what's in DC, et cetera. And so again, I just knew I was going to college and I wanted to get out. I mean, I was from a small state. Again, I say this purposefully, it wasn't a cool state then. It was a pretty quiet, boring, I mean, Providence was pretty boring. So I wanted to get out and see something different. I didn't want to go to college near my home. And frankly, in those days, pretty much none of my friends wanted to go to college near their homes. They wanted to get out to other places. So, um, yeah, so I chose a, a college originally in New York because I knew people who were applying, although none of them went. And, yeah, just kind of applied to a lot of schools and got in. Now, what I did begin to love in my teenage years is dance. Now, it, it, again, in those days, we didn't have helicopter moms. You did what you decided to do. And you're lucky if your parents knew what you were doing. So somehow I fell into dance late, again, late teenage years. And I took some classes and I loved it. I didn't have an image of what I was going to do. I was just going to college. Yeah, I, I, I think that's amazing that there's so many people that that begin college and don't know where they want to go. And what were the pressures like for you? Where did you do your undergrad at? And what was your major? And what were, what was the pressures like for you? And, and do you think part of you wants to get away from your parents outside of leaving the town? Was there some external influence? Like, I, you know, I also I also just want to get away from my dad. I want to get out of that situation as well. So um, yes, and yes, and so my parents separated when I was a junior in high school. So my senior year was actually much more pleasant and calmer. I started college at Hofstra University. And again, then that was kind of a sleepy suburban college, liberal arts college in Long Island, New York. And yes, I wanted to get away from my family. There's no question that, that that was a factor and I wanted to get away and see something else. So it was all of that wrapped together. And I think it's really important for people listening to this who have kids, you know, in those days, it's, we did not have anybody to talk to about where could you go to college? What could you major in? And, and to some extent, I think that built a sense of independence, it helped to build. It's an aspect of building resilience and independence because we had to figure it out ourselves. I So I started at Hofstra and I went into a special, I applied to a special liberal arts program within Hofstra, which ended up being really important. It was one of those lucky decisions. And I won a trip to Europe at the age of 18. Now, again, who went to Europe at 18 by themselves in those days? No one. And that was fortuitous. So I was given 
money by this program. All the students who wanted to participate in the raffle had to give $7.50. I will never forget that. So I gave $7.50 and I was in a program of probably about 50 kids and I won. So they gave me one of the professor's cameras, which was this really fancy camera and the money that they had collected from the raffle. And then I got a few hundred dollars, you know, from my parents and I went off to Europe by myself in the second semester of my freshman year. Now, the other part of that was I had already decided that I didn't want to stay at Hofstra. These, these, two, these two decisions are, um, or events are not related. So I had already decided that this school really wasn't for me in the long run. It was a suburban school, pretty much white um, a lot of wealthy kids. And somehow instinctively, I knew that this wasn't for me. So I actually started applying to colleges in my freshman year for my sophomore year. And it was just, again, fortuitous that I won this trip. I went off to Europe for 18 days by myself. I was a nervous wreck, so much so that my mom had to take me to a doctor because I had hives all over my body. <laughs> and I did it. Turns out that was a major milestone. You know, when we look back and we think of crucible experiences in our lives, turns out this was one of them because I was on my own. I knew no one. I had a limited amount of money and I had certain places, of course, I was going to. I had hotel reservations, pensions, and, um, I had to figure it out. And I can only tell you that I still have vivid images of moments during that trip when I would be sitting, for instance, in a restaurant by myself, feeling very uncomfortable and doing it. Yes. And I have some funny stories of that trip, but I don't want to belabor that um, because I'm sure you want to go on to other, other. No, things. you can tell us once you can tell us one of those stories. Okay, one story that again, you know, turns out later, I think back and think, how did I know to do this? So one of the things my father did do in a positive sense was he was, he and my mother were very involved in rotary. And so my dad found the names and phone numbers of people who were running rotary chapters in all the major cities I was going to. So there I was the last night of my trip and I was in Luxembourg and I ran out of money. <laughs> I didn't have enough money for a hotel. And so I actually called this family. I, you know, they didn't know me from Adam. And on the phone call, originally they thought I was asking for money, which I wasn't. I was just saying, can I stay at your house? <laughs> And so they very graciously allowed me to stay at their house. Turns out they were a very wealthy family. Um, and they had two sons. I stayed in this beautiful little bedroom. They served me in the morning coffee in silver coffee pots and so on. And they took me to what's called an Ikebana. The wife was very involved in Ikebana, which is Japanese flower arranging. And there I was a kid in tie-dye shirts and bell-bottoms. And I was with all of, you know, a room full of women who were very wealthy. And, you know, moments like this, they shape you in the long run because I was exposed to things I would never be exposed to. And I had to figure out where I was going to sleep other than in a park. So um, they took me to the airport in the morning and it was just, it was just delicious. So there's one story of many. And then I, I decided to go um, of all the college. I got into all the colleges I applied to and I didn't apply to many. And I decided to go to University of Toronto in Canada. And I'll just take a pause to see where you want to go with. Yeah, this. Well, what, what made you go out of the country? And that's, that's, that's very interesting. So you actually left the country. And like you said, you were always afraid to like the Europe trip actually opened a lot of doors for you and kind of you, fought through that fear uh, of doing something by yourself. So what made you go to Canada? So again, this was the era of Vietnam. My brother-in-law was applying at the time, 
during my freshman year, so it's 1970. He was applying to be a conscientious objector. And they had, my, he and my sister who were married, went up to Canada to various cities just to see, you know, Toronto, Montreal, et cetera. They had a friend up in Toronto from graduate school and uh, they stayed, you know, with him and they came back and they said to me, we know you're applying to schools on the East Coast, but you have to go see University of Toronto. So my boyfriend and I took a road trip and I just fell, I just fell in love with the city the university, it just was amazing. And so I went to Toronto and again, you know, who did that? Uh, very few people, there were very few American students at the time. I'm still involved with um, the school I attended. University of Toronto is like, um, it's, it's modeled after the British system and it's a consortium of colleges. It's, a, it's, a, it's considered one of the, there are three colleges in Canada that are considered like the Ivy League schools of Canada. And University of Toronto is one of them. And I, I, ch I chose to go to Innis College. I had to apply. And Innis was one of the smallest colleges within the University of Toronto. And it was the creative school. So this was the school at that point in time that was just starting a film department. They had artsy kids, you know. And I just felt like, oh, gee, I want to go there. And I ended up minoring in film, actually, in college and majoring in sociology. And I had to write a, you know, screenplay and all of that stuff. So it was, and I'm still involved with Innis. I, I, I'm on panels with them and I, they just did an article. They're doing an article on me. So um, it was an amazing, one of the best decisions I made in my younger life, in addition to going to Europe. Now, did you pay, did you work at the time? Did you have like jo jobs that well, kind of put you through school or how did you pay for all this? Well, at the time, it's all different now, but you know, if you went to colleges in the United States, the tuition was thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. At the time, University of Toronto, and this was a surprise. This is not why I went. It was under a thousand dollars for like a semester or a year. I can't even remember. I always, you know, in our family at that time, kids didn't work in my, you know, in kind of my um, group. I mean, kids didn't work when they went to college, they studied. Now I worked in the summer. I always had jobs in the summer and that paid for other trips that I took or clothes that I wanted to buy. Um, I chose to save up money from one of those trips and, um, went to Europe again by myself when I was 20 and took a cruise liner, uh, to Europe and back seven days and each way, and then spent about five weeks in Europe, all for probably under a thousand dollars, you know, <laughs> those were different times. So, um, yeah, I just studied. And again, University of Toronto is very different. And the model is when you take a course, you take that course for a year. So for instance, I, one of my classes that I loved is called ethnomethodology. It's like phenomenology. And you know, you'd have the professor for the whole year or sociology, whatever you took. And, and so you really went deep and the standards were very high. You know, I came from a school where, you know, people were out, we were out marching, you know, about the Vietnam War, et cetera. And I was volunteering for political campaigns while going to school. And then I went to Toronto, which at the time was very apolitical. I was an American in a different country and University of Toronto was really hard. I mean, the, the bar was a lot higher. So, you know, I studied, I had great friends and I worked in the summer and uh, boy, that was a great time. And the only reason I left, believe me, I've looked back on this many times and thought, what was I thinking? I fell in love with a boy in my, in my senior year. He was moving to San Diego to open a business. And when I graduated, I thought, oh, I'll just go to San Diego to visit him. Of course, nobody I, in my family or any, no one I knew had ever gone to California. I was the first. 
So I landed in San Diego when I was 21 thinking, oh, I'll just visit. Well, guess what? Uh, that was it. I never, <laughs> I mean, I left to see my family, but I never went back to Toronto. So it was a decision that one makes when one is 21. <laughs> and and so that after that, you, you did you start working or you went ahead and you decided to get your master's degree and then you went on to your doctorate? Um, how did you get into... What was the genesis of that, the progression of that? Um, it was a, we were in a recession then. The country was in a recession. So when I came to California, no, I did not have a job and I couldn't get a job. And after months and months, because there was no one supporting me, it was whatever money I had in my pocket. Um, I went on unemployment insurance for a couple of months and then I finally got a job as a waitress actually as a hostess at a really fancy restaurant. And I was so thrilled, again, 21 years old. And so I just started working as a waitress and so on. And um, what happened is I was in, and, and by the way, the boyfriend and I broke up after about a year and a half, but that's typical stuff. And um, I had made some friends and about well, roughly two years after I had landed in San Diego, um, one of my friends were all applying to grad schools. It was that time of life, right? And so I applied to York University in Toronto, which uh, in, they had one of the um, best programs in arts management in, in North America. I applied to George Washington University in social work, and I applied to USC, the School of Public Administration, in organizational development. So you can tell I was really focused. I got into all of them and I just thought, well, my friends are going to Los Angeles to grad school, so why don't I go to Los Angeles? I mean, these were the way, ways in which people made decisions then. You know, we didn't have anybody to talk to. And, you know, your parents certainly couldn't help you because they hadn't gone to college. So, and my sister by that point was married and um, or was getting married or something like that. And so I went to USC, to the School of Public Administration. Now, funny enough, that is the very school in which I am a professor today, although it's called something different. And um, at that point, the program in organizational development was the second best in the nation. Syracuse was first, and the School of Public Administration was second. And I, so some of the leaders of the field were in, were teaching at USC. And I should probably back up and tell you that I made a mistake. I did not apply to the organizational development program initially. I applied to healthcare administration initially. I took a class. I won't use the professor's name. I still remember him. He was great. I took a class in healthcare administration. And in the first semester, I thought, I hate this. And now what am I gonna do? And I went to a career workshop at the school and Mel LeBaron, who was very famous at the time, was running it. And I walked up to him after it and I said, what do you do for a living? And he said, I'm an organizational development consultant. And I said, what is that? It turns out they, it was the second best school in the country. And I was taught by some of the people who started this field. Um, so it was a just, I just had a glorious time. Now, fast forward, as I was graduating from the program, my mentor, Neely Gardner, who is deceased, um, who was again, one of the four runners in this, forefathers of the field, he and another um, professor emeritus, Henry Reining, had uh, gotten a grant to run a program for the country of Iran. At that point, the Shah was running Iran, was leading Iran. And Neely was, had put together a program um, and hired about five people. And four of us were, had just finished our master's degree. So I was on this really um, esteemed, a very esteemed program. That was my first job out of graduate school. In eight months, I was immersed 
with um, not only faculty at the School of Public Administration, but my peers. And we brought over 40 government administrators from the country of Iran, men and women. And I will tell you that was another crucible experience in my career because that's a once in a lifetime. And um, I learned more than I could ever tell you on this podcast. And um, so fast forward when that program ended because there was a revolution, we were supposed to go back to Iran to continue this program, but there was a revolution. We had to send our people home one month early and then I was out of a job. So I can tell you all about that time period if you want, but um, I worked, I ended up working. I had multiple jobs. One of the jobs I took was I became the executive director of Big Sisters of Orange County, which at the time was separate from Big Brothers. And so I was running a nonprofit at the age of 28. And that was pretty great. Long story short, um, that ended because Big Brothers and Big Sisters became one nationally. And Big Brothers was the um, kind of the gorilla. <laughs> so they took over. And um, again, I got, I ended up um, meeting someone. I was work, I, I came to Orange County for a job. I met someone after being in Orange County for several years. Um, I got married. And when I got married, I thought, hmm, I always wanted to get a doctorate. I didn't need to get a doctorate, but this would be a good time. I'm newly married. I don't have kids. And I had lunch with a friend of mine, colleague of mine, who had gotten her doctorate at Claremont Graduate University. And I went up and I talked to them and several professors. I fell in love with the place. And I also applied to other other universities, but I really wanted to go to Claremont. And that's what I did. And Claremont, interestingly enough, is modeled after New England. <laughs> I mean, I came full circle. If you've never been to Claremont, um, the streets are Harvard, Yale, et cetera. It's, it's modeled after the Ivies in New England and big trees and grass looks like New England. So in some ways, I guess I, I went home and um, it was an unbelievable experience. And I'm still involved with them. I'm on a board at the Peter Drucker School of Management. So I'm very, I've stayed very close to Claremont. They have my, they have my heart um, in so, addition to the University of Toronto. So now I, so now I get to ask you some questions that um, I think a lot of our listeners, you have a lot, a lot of experience. It'd probably take forever to go into all the, all the um, organizations and uh, managers and companies that you help turn around, especially in the, in the, in the leadership space. So I want to ask you some questions about that. Um, can you tell me, like, in your view, because is it difficult? Is it difficult instructing top level, top level managers? So I think one of the things that I think a lot of our listeners want to know how do how do you how do you work with training people that are already at the top of their fields? So let me just say that I started off when I was in my 20s in the training field. However, my career, at some point I said years later, you know, I've done training and training and training and training. I'm going to focus on what I did my master's in, which was training and organizational development. So I really moved toward consulting, you know, how to change companies, how to change organizations. And um, you're right, it would, it, it would bore you and it would take too long to tell you about all the organizations, but um, it is very difficult when you're working with um, senior leaders, um, executives, C-suite, et cetera. It's very difficult to ignite their appetite for change across the board. So in other words, I was always hired in early in my career. I was often hired in by the head of HR, but 
by the time I was in my late thirties and so on, I was hired in by the CEOs almost exclusively. And so there was always someone who wanted the organization or the division to change. But when you looked across the teams, there were many people who did not, including at the sea level. So when you ask me, what's it like? Um, the first, the first, the starting place is always discovery. So my job is no matter where I am is to figure out what's going on, right? Who are these people? What is happening in the culture? What is happening in, you know, what's the structure look like, et cetera, et cetera. And then my job became as the years went on and I became more experienced, my job also became advising and consulting to the CEO. So in other words, I was working with the whole system, but the CEO is the one, if you're working with an executive team, the CEO is the one who has to really build that deep um, commitment with his or her people to help change the organization. So while, while I would be in there working with all layers of an organization, I would also be coaching and consulting with the CEO on what was going on in the organization and with his or her team. I can give you a story or two if you want as examples, but you know, you have to build relationships. So if I'm, if I'm working with an executive team, I have to get to know all the members of that team. So I can't remain an outsider. And in actually in several instances, I embedded myself in the last 10 years, in several instances, I embedded myself and became kind of a, a quite, not really a member of the executive team, but I would, I would sit in on all the executive team meetings. The CEO would rely on me for a lot of judgment in terms of what needed to happen in that team and also in the organization. So I, I became very familiar to the organization, so much so that I built very deep relationships with many people in the organization. And I will also say that this is a very particular way of consulting. So I'm not suggesting I did this everywhere, but I did this with some clients and I would be there for two, three or four years. So I really got to know the fabric of the organization. I wasn't just diving in at the top. And so I was building trust with people um, folks, even people who were resistant would come to know that my heart was in the right place and that we had to work together. Right. And, you know, little by little, you make change happens little by little. So what is the difference between a bad and a good leader? Well, <laughs> I know that's a tough question. The reason I ask is because there has to I mean, you're, we're teaching people, you go in and you have to go, you know, some of those situations I'm sure you go into and you go, wow, you know, I don't even know where to start with this. And yeah. I'm, and I'm not, and we've all had jobs where we've had people were, that were our bosses that I'm not so sure they might've promoted there, but I'm not so sure they were the best leaders. And obviously you want to do those things to change. You have yes. to have leader, leaders willing to change. Um, but what's the different, what is the difference when you go in between, Hey, I've got to fix this or, Hey, this is, this person needs a little bit of tweaking. So it's a great question. And you're right. It's not, you know, this is not a simple answer. So it may sound simple here, but it's not simple in practice. Um, one, one element is complete commitment to change. And a very quick story on this. When I was also an executive inside of a large corporation, I was a chief learning officer and then the president of shared service shared services, shared services. So I ran the whole back end of the business except finance. And, um, and I would say both of those were new positions. So I had to create them. Um, and at one point as the chief learning officer, I wanted to hire Jim Collins from Stanford to be a speaker and to work with us. You know, he wrote built to last good to great, very famous books. His research was excellent. And I wanted to hire him to work with us. And he took uh, the CEO and myself out to lunch one day and, and he grilled us. And the reason he did that is he said, I don't work with any organization where the CEO is not 100% committed to change. 
You can't change your mind midway. So I will say to you, good leaders, bad leaders, one element is what are you committed to? And are you willing to stay the course even when it gets rough because it will get ugly and it will get rough? Another is awareness. So if a CEO tends to blame a lot of other people for issues, if the CEO is not willing to say, tell me the brutal truth, um, then I can't work with them because my job is not to tell them what they want to hear. My job is actually to look around corners and see what they don't see and to talk to them about that. So that, that ha has to do with awareness and it has to do with ability to listen and humility. Humility is huge because if someone is too narcissistic, um, if their ego is too large and they deflect what they hear, the chain, whatever the change is, it's not going to work. So commitment, awareness, humility, willingness to look in the mirror and hear the brutal truth. Let's just say that for time. Um, those are some of the elements because it is always the toughest job. If you're driving change, it's the toughest job. So you're going to run into brick walls. And I know people ask you this all the time is, are leaders born or developed? They're developed. I don't have to think about that. Um, of course, there are people. Of course, there are people, you know, you, tr you trace them back to their childhood. You know, like myself, I was the president of a, a social civic organization, you know, when I was a teenager. There are people, and I've interviewed lots and lots of very successful people. So, yeah, there are some people who just had the gene, <laughs> who just had to be in front for whatever reason um, or had or wanted to lead other people, not necessarily be in front. But um, other than those rare people, leaders are developed, and hence the program I'm running now and the work I've been doing. Um, lots of people never, you know, you take someone who's in their 40s and you say, did you ever think you are going to be doing what you're doing now. And almost always people say, no, I never could have imagined it. So. Okay. So that that's very heartening for everybody out there to know you can build your leadership skills. Can you name a couple of books, maybe that suggest a couple of books that people might be interested in, in reading that would help develop those leadership skills. Um, obviously you run a great program at USC. They can apply to your executive master's uh, program at USC. Um, and we'll let you go ahead and give that um, information at the end. Um, any books that you would suggest that people, if they want to build their leadership skills? Okay, so my caveat is I wasn't prepared for that question. I wasn't prepared for any of the questions. Um, but books, I have so many books that all I'm telling you is what's at the top of my mind, right? It's not and necessarily the best books, but these are good, really great books, Okay. And that's on purpose. That's on purpose, by the way. We don't, we don't give you the questions. So go ahead. <laughs> I know your method. Um, <laughs> so um, one, as you know, Martine, is mindset. Carol Dweck from Stanford did is has done great research, and um, the reason I mentioned that book is because we all need to continue to build our mindsets such that we are open to change. And her book is a it's a good read and um, yeah, it's a very good read and it's based on good research. So that's one. Um, Amy Edmondson out of Harvard wrote a fabulous book called Teaming. And I would recommend that book if you're interested in teams, collaborations, et cetera. Um, Primal Leadership is one we use in the program. That's great if you want to learn about emotional intelligence and some of the research. Any of Daniel Goldman's work, G-O-L-E-M-A-N, um, is great in terms of emotional intelligence, which we all need to build <laughs> a lot as leaders. Um, so let me just, I mean, those are off the top of my head. And, um, you know, one of, one of the people who teaches in my program Prasad Kaipa, Dr. Prasad Kaipa wrote a great book called Smart to Wise. And he distinguishes, you know, what's a smart leader, what's a wise leader. And Jim Collins, even though his work is older, you can't throw away everything that's older or diminish it. 
Uh, Jim Collins's book on good, you know, good to great, great by choice. These are these are really good um, books for someone who wants to understand how does an organization move from just doing okay to outperforming. Yeah, I could go on hours with you for sure, <laughs> Dr. Geffner. Um, let me ask. Let me ask you. Uh, who is one person in your life that you'd you'd love to meet? I know you're going to write. Uh, you're writing a book, uh, supporting women in leadership, which is uh, wonderful. Um, who is somebody that you would love to meet, and what would you say to them? Hmm. I knew you were going to put me on the spot. <laughs> oh gosh. And I know some of your former guests have said this, but honestly, Barack Obama. I don't. I don't mean to repeat what other guests have said. But Barack Obama is so smart. He's really, he's exceptionally smart. He's also measured. You know, none of us will ever say that we've seen Barack Obama show up in a way that's frenetic, um, dogmatic. You know, he is, he is measured. He is strategic. He, he knows this is a man who, who reads voraciously and he is aware. I mean, his decisions are not seat of the pants decisions. And he asks people who work for him to tell him all of the perspectives. He wants to know not just what he wants to hear, but he wants to know all different views about a decision. And we need that when we're dealing with complex decisions in this world. And you cannot make decisions based on what you want to hear. We have seen the result of that. And um, he is a staunch supporter of democracy. And um, and so I would, I would love, and I would want to ask him, what did you do? How did you feel? And how did you deal with situations that were really, um, antithetical to where you wanted to be. So you got lots of opinions. You had some people pushing you for decisions that were against either your values or what you thought was best. How did you deal with you, your own reactions? So what was going on with you internally and how did you get to a place where you could keep people working together and also remain measured externally. That's what I probably would ask him first. Okay, and here's here's a, a few last questions I always get to give you these. Um, what do you most love about your role as a mom? Oh, it's the best role. I mean, let me just tell you, um, I was an older mom. So I was 40 when my son came into this world. And so I had lots of time to think about and to have all the emotions around becoming a mom. This wasn't an easy ride. And he was my miracle. He was my miracle. And um, don't, I don't want to cry on the show, but um, Aaron, Aaron was welcomed with just completely loving arms by his dad and myself. And what do I love about being a mom? I love him. I mean, he's him. Um, just, just helping someone come into the world and find their place in the world. And that's the hardest job there is. And what do you want to be remembered for in life? Helping when others. That's it. That's, I, I don't want to, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. And there are a lot of things that I'd like, or not a lot. There are a few things I'd like to be remembered for, but helping others. And by the way, my son is at the top of that list. Okay. So I want to be remembered for being a great mom, helpful mom, loving mom. And I want to be remembered for helping people make a difference in this world. Cause that's why I do the work I do. I know that sounds corny, but that's true. That's what keeps me moving forward when times are tough. So that's what I'd like to be remembered for. And 
really quickly, I'm going to wrap it up by saying anything on your bucket list left, left one thing you can give me, and then we're going to go ahead and let you talk about uh, yourself a little bit in terms of where they can get in contact with you. Okay. Uh, going to Africa. And I'm actually starting to plan that for 2023. I've wanted to go to Africa since my 30s, but I didn't want to go when my kid was little. I didn't want to go that far. And um, I've been working. So that's that's one of my bucket list. Uh, I have others. Um, and people can reach me through, I would, I, I guess the USC email is the, is the easiest one. Did you want me to say that or? Yes. Yes. If they, if you can give them any, if anybody would like to take any of your, uh, if they take it, get, you know, uh, get your services in any way, if they yes. can get, so yes. your consulting services, whether they want to apply to USC's uh, program. And then yes. also if you can just give the title of your book and when that might be hitting the stores as well. Sure. So the, I think the the easiest way is just to give one email address, even yes. though, you know, uh -huh. so it's C Geffner. And I think people can see the spelling of my last name. You can correct me if that's wrong. So C Geffner at USC.edu. C Geffner at USC.edu. My book is on women leadership in male dominated positions and professions. It will be released in 2023 through MIT, and it's called Level Up. That's the primary title, and more to come on that as we get closer. Well, I want to say thank you so much for being here. I want to thank uh, my producer, Brian Garcia. He's amazing. Um, thank you so much for supporting me, Brian. Thank you, Carol, for supporting me. Um, I also want to give a shout out to Hannah, uh, Hannah is designing some wonderful shirts for the podcast and you can, you can get her at Indie love 28, uh, at your Instagram handle, but she's made some wonderful shirts and I'll be giving those out soon. You'll be getting one of those shirts Yay. and, and, and Brian and, 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 uh, and some of our listeners as well. Um, if you like the podcast, uh, please review it on all the major, uh, podcast platforms. And we're going to be having some other wonderful guests coming up. Thank you so, so much for everything, Carol. I really, really appreciate your time. I honestly have pages of questions for you, and I, I only got through a portion of them. But thank you so, so much for being here. Well, I want to thank you, really, because this was great. You know I support you 100% in everything you're doing, and um, you're champion. And thank you for the opportunity. Absolutely. Have a wonderful day. Thank sure. you. See everybody soon.